Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Remote Real Estate Investor. I'm Michael Albaum, and today I'm joined by... Emil Shore. And we have a very special guest with us. Our guest today is Mark Ainley with GC Realty and Development, and he's going to be giving us an overview of the Chicago market. So let's get into it. Okay, so before we get into our interview with Mark, I wanted to run everybody through some of the quantitative data characteristics about Chicago. So let's start off with the population. So as of July 1st, 2019, according to the Census Bureau, the population was 2,693,976. The greater metro area had 8.8 million, which is a 0.03% increase from 2019. Another question that we wanted to answer is, is, is the population changing? And it looks to have been roughly stable over the last few years. Let's talk briefly about the economy. The median household income is currently 74100 which is up from last year's 73100 And the projection for next year is to increase by another $1,100 for a grand total of 75200 So this is according to the John Burns data. The employment growth is currently at 12.1%. Last year was 0.5% and projected next year is 12.1%. Wow. And so that was a massive jump from last year, which is pretty exciting to see. The median home price is currently 270000 Last year, it was 251300 So there was definitely some appreciation there. Let's talk about the median rent in Chicago. Currently, it's $1,740. Last year was $1,722, which represents a 2.5% year-over-year growth. And the projection going forward is actually a slight decrease down to $1,688. Occupancy in properties, currently it's 94.5%. And last year, it was also 94.5%. So that remains strong and consistent. That's in single-family homes. The apartment occupancy is currently at 94.6%, which is down 0.1% from 94.7% in last year. The average gross rental yield is currently 7.9%. Last year was 7.9%, and the projection is 7.1%, so a slight decrease. So the split of single-family to multifamily ownership versus rental rates. So their total number of households is 3,198,651. Of those, 58% are owner-occupied, or in other words, 1.8 million, and 34% are renter-occupied, which is 1.078 million. 8% are currently vacant, which represent 261,000 properties that are currently vacant. So that's all the quantitative data. Let's hop into the interview with Mark and learn some more about some of the qualitative stuff about the market of Chicago. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's an honor to be on here. I've been working with you guys for a few years now, and uh, I'm happy we get to kind of chat like this. Good, good. Well, hey, I'm going to come out swinging from the gates. I want to know, you're a Chicago guy. Lou Malnati's or Gino's East? Uh, Lou Malnati's all day oh, long. Oh, thank God. I was going to say, this is going to be the shortest podcast ever if you said Gino's East. <laughs> <laughs> no, Lou, Lou's got that, you know what? They got the pizza and they got that salad. They got that crazy salad with their house dressing. It is just amazing. So. It's unbelievable. And for anybody who doesn't know, those are two both Chicago deep dish pizza restaurants. And my mom's from Chicago, so I grew up eating Lumonati. So anyone who doesn't, who uh, who eats Gino's, we're going to have uh, fighting words for. Yep, yep, yep. You can get them mail, you could get them shipped out now too, frozen. So I've done it before. It's yep. the most expensive pizza ever, but it's totally worth it. Yep, yep. <laughs> so 
Mark, I would love for you to dive into your background a little bit, share with our listeners who you are, where you come from, and how you participate in the real estate space. Yeah. So I grew up born and raised in Chicago in the suburbs. I got into real estate in 2001, two as an investor. Then I got my license and we opened GC Realty in 2003. I think I was 24 then. You know, We were just kind of going at any which way to make money, whether it be buying a property or renting a property or property management or selling some guy a property. So GC started off with a very kind of like do whatever it takes to make money. Now that worked out great for us going into the Great Recession when if you had were specialized in something and it tanked, you know, we were kind of had a bunch of cards in a bunch of different spots. So it was good with that. But you know, getting into 13, 14, you know, so when the market crashed, we, we turned into investors, right? And we kind of focused a lot on that. And we did a lot of our audience will call now the burst strategy. And, and we did close to 500 units on that and the Chicago South Side and Chicago South Suburbs. So I, I have a lot of 500 uh, burrs. Yeah, 482 units between 8 and 18. So Holy smokes. But uh, lots of lessons there. I, I have uh, I talked to some of the local real estate groups for hour sometimes just on what not to do with birth strategy. So yeah. <laughs> but the uh, you know in 14, 2014, while we we're doing these flips, we we're you know, GC was growing on the management side. And we never really set out to be a management company. And uh, you know, you know, things were getting kind of chaotic around the office. And my, my partner and I were like, you know, what's going on? You know, we used to be able to do this, no problem. And I kind of said to him, I said, man, we're managing 250 units in, in a million square feet of commercial space and we don't have a policy in place. So, you know, we were getting it done, but with a lot of stress. And, and uh, you know, when you were trying to run it like that, you know, we had back in then what we'll call a hub and spoke type model for our, our company where me and my partner, Brian, were the, in the middle of the, the hub and we had all these people, but every decision had to come through us. So in, in 14, we kind of said, hey, we're, we're kind of a management company with this type of volume we have. You know, the average management company in the United States has 250 units and we were already past that <laughs> and we weren't even trying to be a management company. So we... Then kind of, uh, we said, you know, we're a management company, you know, start to start kind of putting in place to start marketing. You know, at that point in 2014, I Googled up property management in the town we were in and we weren't even on the map then. Some guy that was a real estate agent in our office who was doing management on the side, his name came up under our address and Ivan us. So we, we got to that kind of point with uh, just kind of doing a good job, right? So referrals and friends and, and you know, we sell people to invest property and we start managing it. But we then ever since have been working on growing the property management. In 2018, you know, we had the decision of, do we continue on this, the development side and keep buying properties or do we focus on the property management side of the company? And you know, we never really ramped up our acquisitions. Competition was getting steeper out there as far as people that we were competing with. You know, they're maybe paying more than we would have paid, but they would never realize it to the end of their project. So we said, hey, we could probably get a better return on our investment and our time if we build a better machine when it comes to property management. Because we realized at that point how much of the property management plays when it comes to buying an investor property. I always tell people you could buy a a great property, but if you have a crappy property manager, that, that'll sink everything. You could buy an average property and have a great property manager, and that actually will be do you a lot better. So, you know, with that, we kind of have spent the last few years, you know, networking and just building best practices. You know, our industry is known to be fairly low tech, and just with everything that's out there these days, just kind of building out. Uh, you know, we built out our, our own management software and, and just the different integrations we have with that that kind of makes life easier. So. We've been uh, just working on that for the last couple of years. And you know, I spend a lot of my day, my role, uh, I've, I have two partners now, but my role specifically handles the, uh, I get to be the face of the company and do fun shows like this with you guys. And, awesome. uh, and I handle the new business uh, and onboarding. So I kind of feel like I'm the gatekeeper to our company um, and kind of let work with people that uh, make sure that we can succeed with and make sure they're buying the right properties. And, and I do a lot of the educational piece that ultimately uh, attracts people to us. But yeah, that's kind of where we're at today. 
we need to get you a beard and a staff and you can say, you shall not pass. Yes, yes. <laughs> so would love to hear a little bit of just kind of an oversight of the Chicago market for people that don't know it, aren't familiar with it, are looking to learn about it, because that's what I really want to focus on today is educating people about Chicago. So give us the, the high level, the, the good, the bad, the ugly. Yeah, the good side of things. So Chicago is uh, third largest city in the country. And we're third by a large amount. It's, you know, I think the next uh, largest is Houston and, and we're about 600,000 larger than that. So we got a whole, we're a whole Boston ahead of uh, Houston in that <laughs> sense. And, you know, so talking about just kind of the, the con that you might hear out there, you hear a lot of population type issues and people moving out. But if you look at the last three years, it's, it's been pretty steady um, with a small incri- incline. And then you look at the last 10 and 20 years, there's definitely been increases in that. Now, where a lot of these studies you hear that come out of po- around population with uh, Chicago ends up being people move from the city to the suburbs or vice versa, where the people moving live in the city might only move six or seven miles to the suburb right next door, but it gets counted in that, that population decline. And the large amount of people that left around 2008, 2009, you know, ended up being in more D-class neighborhoods that were getting redeveloped. And a lot, there's a lot of redevelopment going on there as well now too, uh, based on, you know, a bunch of buildings became vacant, they tore some of them down and so forth. So, but, you know, population is still growing there as a state overall. You know, the cost of living here is cheap. You know, I talk to uh, you guys on the West Coast. I talk to, uh, you know, I talk to people every day from around the country uh, as my job. And, you know, I, I always just ask the curiosity questions of like, it's your mortgage payment or what's your your taxes and, and what's that stuff and or what's your house worth and what size and all that. And if you look at it on a square footage basis, like, we're really affordable. Uh, our rents are very affordable and and our, our sale price are very affordable. Now, to counter that, people do talk about property taxes here and the property mm-hmm. tax being high. But there's still a gap in what we pay for our taxes versus what we're paying for as, as far as uh, what you're getting for the pricing goes. So, And that very varies too. So you hear about Illinois and the taxes. So a lot of the properties that you guys might have on your platform that, that I talk to your buyers, they're buying it in the city of Chicago and they're buying a single family home and the taxes might only be 1500 bucks. We can all live with that. That's great. You get into the suburbs, the taxes end up getting a little higher. Our county that Chicago is in and a lot of the suburbs is called Cook County. And that's one of the six counties that's in, that makes up the Chicago metro area. In Chicago, you have the lowest taxes, right? When you get outside of Chicago into Cook County suburbs, you have a little higher taxes. So you could be in that four to $7,000 range for taxes on, on a property. Now, a lot of those properties, though, you're getting a couple thousand dollars a month in rent. So again, the risk level there, and you're only paying $125,000 for that property. So your numbers make sense a lot of time. Now you get into some of these other collar counties, we call them, because you got Chicago and then you got everything that wraps around, so they call it collar counties. Your taxes aren't as bad when you get outside of Cook County. So you know that's just, just wanted to kind of expel that myth when people are talking about taxes and population. But overall, you know, at Chicago, Illinois, I think it ends up being, we are, there's like 60 or 70, I think it's like 65 Fortune 500 companies that are in Illinois. Wow. That's huge. And I think inside of the city of Chicago, I think there's uh, nine or 10 of them. So there's a lot of money that flows through the city and you have a lot of of jobs on all pay scales as far as opportunity goes. So I I answered that question based on the normal objectives I hear. So if there's more (laughs) you want to dig into, I'm ready. No, that's that's great. And so, just I want to clarify so I understood. So it's called is it Cook County or Coke County? Cook County, Cook County, Cook County. Okay, great. And then, do you know how property taxes are assessed or calculated? Because it's something I talk to investors all the time about how they need to call the county assessor and validate and verify how property taxes are levied. So, in the state of Illinois or in in Cook County or or in the metro area, is it based on sale price? 
will a sale trigger a new assessment, which will cause a change of property tax, or is it evaluated every couple of years? How, how does it work? So Cook County, they call it an assessment year. So Cook County is on a, a tri level. So every three years, the county will get reassessed. And what I'll give you guys that you can put in maybe a show notes is a link that people can go and kind of uh, understand anything they're looking at in Cook County as far as how it's broken down. And perfect. So that'd be valuable for anybody looking. And, and I'll tell you one more thing, though. One thing that's important here in Chicagoland that's probably, I don't hear being too important with too many other metros is contesting property taxes. The, you know, here, maybe it's part of the Illinois Democratic machine. I, I don't know. But in Illinois, I always tell people, if you own property taxes, you want to have part of your, if you're an investor, sorry, if you own properties as an investor, you want to contest your property tax on, a, on an annual basis. Now, you might only, I always tell people your success rate would probably be two out of five years. And you usually, if you have the right attorney, you only pay based on a percentage of what they save you. But the exercise of doing it every year is something that you want to make sure you're consistent at. Interesting. So with the, with the assessment happening every three years, let's say you bought a property in 07, your property taxes are going to increase by a, a minor percentage every year. And then in 2010, it'll get reassessed at some kind of new value. But if there's a sale in between 07 to 10, there's no new assessment. Did I understand there's that? no new assessment at that point, but you still want to be contesting. You could also contest things. Another valuable tip here for people is you can contest based on vacancy factor. So if a property, I believe there's a couple different thresholds. So if a property is vacant for more than 25% of the year or 25% of the units are, are vacant for a certain amount of time, if you're a multifamily, you can get a tax break. And if it's the higher you go, the higher the tax break contest will be. So if you have a you know, sometimes might, someone might have a move out and they go and do, maybe they're doing updates. They're going to replace the kitchen or replace the bath. And you might have a four month, then by the time Santa actually moves in, you're at five months. You have to file for that vacancy factor because you might save, uh, you might make up for a thousand bucks in taxes that year. Really good tip. Mark, I want to ask you something. If I'm a new investor coming and looking at Chicago, geographically, where would you tell me to look? What are some of the tips you would give me? Like this area is is you know low, lower priced homes, but maybe C class neighborhood or just like how would you give me like a geography lesson on Chicago as an investor? Yeah, so a lot of people you know at out of state are attracted here to the south side and south suburbs, and that is purely because the cap rates are much more attractive, or on paper they look a lot more attractive. Now there is, and there's very hand. There's only a handful of maybe call it areas of the entire Chicago area where there's not investment opportunities. But a lot of, you know, maybe, maybe for example, a site like yours or another site might only be limited to a particular area. They, they kind of gravitate to that. Then they learn about that area and they stick around that area. Or uh, they're teamed up with an, a real estate agent that is working on investments. They might only go towards a certain area. So there's not many areas there's not investment opportunity, but a lot of people end up going to the south side and south suburbs based on you're getting that higher that higher return. You know, the difference is sometimes in the numbers is in the south suburbs, you're dealing with a tax issue like we were just talking about before. And in the city, you have less of that. But overall, those are kind of where people gravitate to. So if you're looking at a map of Chicago and you see the downtown area and you, you kind of look straight down, that, that's kind of where that south side part is and, and the south suburbs. So Okay. And is Cook County in that south south suburb as well? Yes, it is. Now, part okay. of it falls into Will County, but call it 80% of it is in Cook County. So yes. Got it. Okay. And what about the, the Northwest and East sides of Chicago? I know on one side, we've got the lake, right? So I was raised in the Western suburbs. A lot of properties I bought over the years are in the Western suburbs, Northwest suburbs. They're very, they're, they're awesome. They're, they're great investments and, and I, they're very conservative. I think the Northwest side, uh, the, the West side, you're going to end up, uh, not West side of Chicago, West suburbs. Um, you end up with a lot more 
A and B class type investments. You might only get a four or five percent return, but you're you're going to get a much more conservative, quiet type investment. Now, I failed to bring up because it's one of my areas, especially South Side, South Suburbs. But the West Side of Chicago has a comparable investment opportunity as the South Side, and prices is, is similar too. I just don't do too much there myself there because just resources wise. Okay, great. And then on the North Side. Yeah. So north side, uh, as you go straight up north, there's less and less opportunity. There's a lot more condos. So a lot of your investments end up being either make or break based on how well the condo associations ran. So if you have a much more efficient ran building, or maybe a lot more of the expenses are pushed back on the utilities that fall on the tenant side, you might have a lower assessment and you can make the numbers work. But I do find a lot of stuff as you go up north ends up having a lot of it's tougher to make the numbers work. It's usually the make or break ends up falling around this HOA fees. So Okay. Mark, can you give us an idea of what your average kind of run-of-the-mill 3-2 would rent for in some of the different neighborhoods so folks have an idea of what to expect as they're looking, comparing their list price to rent ratios as they're looking around different neighborhoods? Yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll uh, see. I'll kind of bounce around here. So you look at a 3-2. So the cool thing, if you're in the city of Chicago, you know, having one bath is, is not a bad thing. Um, it's actually better because it's less maintenance. So your housing stock, a lot of in these older buildings we're talking about, the majority of them end up being 3-1. Maybe they have a, a second bath in the, in the basement or something like that. But if you have one bath, it's not the end of the world. But call it 3-2 in the, in the, in the city, you're going to end up being in that uh, you know, kind of fourteen dollars to $1,600 price range. Now you go to the south suburbs, a second bath is crucial. Our times to rent a house one bath is very rare now, or it's very slow. And it's very rare to have one bedroom houses in the south suburbs. A lot of the south suburb housing stock was built in the 50s, it was, most of the suburbs in the South Suburbs were post, what's the word, boom uh, baby boomers. era. Yeah, baby boomers. Or when they all came back from World War II, yeah. they built all these suburbs. Some of the first suburbs, like laying them out, were in the South Suburbs here in Chicago. But they will rent anywhere from sixteen to 2000 down there. So, But again, still kind of that, that $100,000 to $150,000 price range. You get out into the Western Suburbs, or let's say, we'll say North Side of Chicago, you know, a three two, you, you might get twenty five to thirty five hundred, depending on the neighborhood. You go into the western suburbs, three two, you're going to get probably about twenty five hundred. You but the north side and the the suburbs, you'll pay a much higher purchase price though in those areas. So right, awesome, cool. Talked uh, before we were recording this, you were telling us about those flips that you were working on and talking. Talk to us a little bit about the housing stock in on the south and south side and and on the west side. Is it older homes? Is it new construction? What are you seeing? I wish I would have had a, a slide. I had a slide prepared for a, another presentation I did one time, but uh, I'm going to be close to my numbers right here. So if anyone's fact-checking me, I, I'll be close. <laughs> Chicago has a very old housing stock in the sense of, I, th- I believe it was right around six, four, uh, 65% of our housing stock is older than 1960. And you know, if you compare that to a couple other major investor markets, I think Memphis has about 30%. And I think Houston has like 9% older than 1960. So we have a much older housing stock. And that comes with older housing problems. And a lot of mistakes I see investors make is, listen, I think the old houses are built way better than the new ones. And I think your level of, uh, you know, if you got an all brick building, I mean, it's just uh, what you're buying at as far as versus uh, rebuild or reproduction is, is sick, like as far as what the comparison is. So you have, and, and I know, so, you know, I went, to, I looked at investing in Milwaukee as well too. And I never appreciated our housing stock and, and our architectural uh, kind of feel and all the brick homes compared to Milwaukee. Milwaukee has a lot more frame type stuff, a lot of good opportunities up there. But 
uh, Chicago housing, I, I kind of really got the appreciation for it when I, when I went and looked at Milwaukee as an opportunity. But so these buildings that you're buying, I see a lot of investors make a mistake where you, they might see all the pictures on, of the cosmetic work that was done. And it looks great. The bathroom's redone. The kitchen's redone. You know, it's got an occupied tenant living in there. Maybe they put a new porch on it. Porch is another big issue in Chicago specific. But the opportunity to overlook what your long-term expenses are going to be are so much greater because of those pictures. <laughs> and, and one of the big things is the piping for the plumbing. I think that's one of the biggest obstacles, I think, in these older houses is up until I believe it was the, the end of the 60s or something like that, early 70s, they were using the galvanized plumbing. And uh, they're taking that galvanized plumbing all the way from the street where you're getting your water supply and, and all your water sources throughout the house. Now, galvanized plumbing has multiple different issues that can come up. And eventually, no matter what, will have to be changed out to what we use now as copper. And the issues when you buy a house today that might have these 50 or 60 or, or 80 or 100-year-old galvanized plumbing is it builds up on the inside. In my slideshow, I got all these nice little pictures of the corrosion inside and how nasty it is. But it has uh, it, it corrodes. It's a lot more, uh, you're, you're subject to a bunch more leaks. Your water pressure sucks. So you end up getting nickel to dime on the tenant calling about water pressure, this and that. And you end up, your maintenance ends up being a lot higher when you're going to eventually have to change out no matter what. And the other thing about galvanized plumbing that I see people make mistakes with is maybe a guy went in and rehabbed and he replaced the kitchen and the bathroom and he put copper in, but he then connected the copper to the galvanized, which that ends up always kind of cause a bunch of different issues because the galvanized that's existing will pump a bunch of crap into your brand new copper, uh, causing slowness. And then also it's always prone to at joints where they have to get them together, uh, leaks and breaks and so forth. So what's a buyer's defense against avoiding some of those problems? Uh, so, you know, when you're getting your home inspection or, or referencing home inspections that have been completed, the goal is to just simply, or to ask that question, hey, has the copper been updated or has the plumbing been updated to copper? So I think that's the biggest one. You know, your other electrical systems and HVA systems, you know, they're less complicated. So electrical is pretty easy. I mean, to uh, upgrade a house and, you know, unless you have, uh, what's a knob and tube. Yeah, knob and tube in there. You're pretty good. You, you shouldn't have to be too bad. Uh, most of the houses don't have fuses, but even then, uh, if you had to work, live on fuses for 20 years, you're not going to have be nickel dime on your, your maintenance type stuff. You have to count for updating it someday or reflecting the sales price, but you're not going to get hit on the maintenance side. Uh, HVAC side of things, you know, you have a lot of these old buildings that were built with radiator systems. And uh, you have these old radios that sit in the rooms and it's uh, it's got a boiler down to the basement. And uh, there, there's a lot of opportunity when you have boilers and it's a very efficient way of heating, especially if you're the landlord, if somehow the heating systems where you're paying for it. But when that boiler goes out to update that or to replace that, it's usually pretty expensive. I had one year, I had one November, three boilers go out for me, like all at one time. It was horrible. I had to finance it. That's how bad it was. <laughs> oh man. Holy smokes. So what can an investor do if you know they see the inspection, it has all galvanized plumbing? Would you recommend that they steer clear of it? Like, What would your recommendation be? You know what? No deal can ever be horrible in the sense of those things in, in, as long as you know what that costs or what that future problem is going to be, right? So you know, I, I get a lot of people, they're like, oh, I'm backing out because of this, this, and that. I'm like, yeah, but you're buying it for 40% below market value. Just pay the 12 grand and get that updated. Like that, That's an opportunity because most other people don't have the resource you do to go ahead and do it. So if, if you come across a property that's got a galvanized plumbing, you could just call it a single family home to recognize that, all right, the price compared to the, the what I'm buying it for compared to kind of the market value, if it had it, as long as I have, you know, get the numbers, get educated on those numbers. I know it's for a single family home. I'll kind of uh, spew out to people that, you know, it's make sure you have five to seven grand in there to 
repipe an entire house. And if you're buying it for 20,000 under and that's your only problem, that's still a good deal. That's an add value right there. Right. I, I always talk with investors that no problem is scary until I see a number associated with it. <laughs> Whatever right. it's going to cost, you can, pay, you can pay to fix it. Yeah, yep. when, when you were telling me that, I was I was imagining like 20, 30K and now you tell me five to seven, which is not not that crazy, especially if you're getting a good deal, right? It's not not insane at all. When you get into multi-unit buildings and three flats and four flats, and then it becomes a coordination problem of multiple tenants and all that, you know, it's a single family home. You got to do those type of things when the place is empty. So and it just ends up being more of a pain plus the cost when you have a multifamily. So yeah, great tip. So Mark, we're recording this in late August and curious to know what's going on with COVID in Chicago. I should have been prepared for this question, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's became, it's became such a norm just to be living in it that that uh, answer the question from an outside source is, is uh, unique. But, you know, so COVID, you know, and, you know, as a property manager, as a business, you know, we went into March, like we prepared for war. Like, you know, we, we, we thinned down and, and, uh, and beefed up on where we thought we we're going to have problems with like collections and we got ahead of a lot of the issues that I think we could have had, or I hear other property managers have. So from us, we were able to kind of stay still. Now on the investor side of things for our properties, one of our biggest concerns was rent collections. If we can't collect rents, our owners can't pay their bills. If they can't pay their bills, we're usually one of their bills. And then they're going to have all these other bills. It's going to cause a whole wave of problems. So we put a lot of resources into the tenant collections side of things. And you know, we already had a dedicated person. That's all they did 40 hours a week was collections, but we kind of, be, we added another half a person and we just added a different approach. Cause you know, when COVID hit, you had to reincorporate empathy into everything and uh, you never knew who you're going to call or what they were going through. So we kind of looked at it from through those lenses, like, Hey, this could be a family member that has an issue from COVID. So let's treat them that way. And I think our biggest problems from COVID that we've had have not been from the people that actually have problems from COVID. It's been from the people who are like, Oh man, the, the evictions are closed. I don't have to pay. Like those are the people we've had the problems with. The, the people that that uh, just saw this as an opportunity versus anything else. So we we've had to deal with those one at a time. You know, we I put a blog on Bigger Pockets the other day about uh, cash for keys here in Chicago, and maybe it's something you want to talk about too. But evicting a tenant and using the legal system is, in Cook County is a pain in the ass, a pain in the butt. And we've learned to do the whole concept of cash for keys as a normal strategy versus when COVID and the court shut down. With court shut down, we're like, all right, we just don't have that as an extra leg to stand on or as a, a final backup plan. So we've had to do negotiate the cash for keys and you know, to, uh, kind of try to create some win-wins or pay a little more for cash for keys than we might. And I think for us, we had to get rid of a round of tenants and we maybe have one or two left that uh, were problems when COVID hit. Now, we've had no problem filling units, which was partially a surprise to me. If, if I, if I would have looked back 120 days ago and said, hey, we won't have an issue filling with qualified tenants. And we've done that, no problem. And, and times have actually been pretty good as far as leasing stuff up. And the new people we're putting in, we've had uh, no issues with their collection side of things. So it's optimistic. So when you have to go tell an owner, listen, this tenant went bad because you know they're just stonewalling us because of uh, this, but we're confident we can find someone, it makes it a little easier. Like, hey, listen, we'll get them out this way and then we'll put someone else qualified in and we should be uh, clear at that point. So that's made kind of the, the back end of, of those problems a little easier. Awesome. Mark, can you tell everybody what Cash for Keys is for those who might not be familiar with it? Yes. Yes. So Cash for Keys is basically the offer from the landlord to pay the tenant cash to leave in a certain amount of time. So a lot of owners have a hard time with it. A lot of investors have a hard time with it out of principle, right? Hey, you owe me 2000 and I'm going to give you another 1000 to leave. But in my Bigger Pockets article, I, I broke down the math. I broke it down for if I can't 
legally evict anybody between now and maybe the best chance I have of getting them out is going to be February. What are my costs? What are my hard costs? What are my opportunity costs? What's that stress level? You can't really put a number on that, but it's a, it, it, there's a, there's a value to that. <laughs> the best uh, approach, you know, I, I get a lot of calls from pro- from property owners basically lately saying, "Hey, I have I have this tenant she won't pay, and I and I tried to evict it, and the courts pushed out." I said, "Listen," and I, I told them about cash for keys, and they might push back, and I'll say, "Listen, if I told you you could solve all your problems and wake up tomorrow with your tenant gone, and all it's going to cost you is uh, fifteen hundred bucks, would you do it?" And they're like, "Yeah," I'm like, "That's what I'm trying to tell you." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we don't have to use it often. You know, we have to use it when we inherit. We inherit. You know, we're a property management company, so a lot of people call us when they have the problem. So we we inherit a lot of problems. We have to utilize it, and then we've had a few bad uh, seeds uh, through this. So our screening. I just want to make sure I go on record. Our, our screening is really top notch. We have a whole matrix system for that, and especially for C and D glass type properties. Great. It's interesting. We were chatting with your buddy, um, Matt Whitaker over at GK houses in Birmingham and asked him a very similar question. And he goes, guys, our occupancy is through the roof. We've yeah. never been this high. And it sounds like you're experiencing the same thing. Yes. Yes. It's amazing. So, I, Cause I, it sounds like at least from the folks that I've spoken to and Emil, you probably, I don't know if it's same for you, but the wave of lack of payments and evictions and low occupancy just hasn't been experienced by the folks that I've spoken to. Well, I can give you some hard numbers that kind of compare us. So when uh, COVID hit, you know, we're a service business, right? Property manager service business. And we're like, man, how can we make our owners feel good? So I started every Thursday, I send an email, maybe it's five or six bullet points. And I throw a little quick bomb bomb video on there to, and say a couple things to them. But I will include every week our collection numbers for this this week or for this month based on our 12-month average. So we group that between A and B class as one number and C and D class. So we, we manage 1,100 homes and we're probably about half and half, half A and B, half C and D. We've been tracking that number ever since it hit. And uh, so, for example, yesterday we sent out the email and our A and B were actually ahead like 0.15% uh, on our A and B collections. And our C and D, we are behind. We're behind on our twelve month average. It's like it was three point four five percent, and that, that's awesome. If you had told me that six months ago, now I'll tell you this: that three point is is higher than it's been the last couple months. But this month in Illinois, um, they uh, they announced a five thousand dollars grant to anyone that's behind. So we had a handful of tenants this month that didn't pay, so they could apply for that. <laughs> nice. So that, our numbers are all skewed. So that number's been in that one and low two percent ever since COVID start, even on our C and D class uh, properties. So and Mark, you said you guys only manage single family home or some multifamily as well. No, so we have we have a little of everything. Uh, you know, our biggest you know, we specialize in that kind of one to six unit building. Uh, yep. We do a one fifty six unit building. We have uh, a couple forty twos, but mostly one to sixes are kind of uh, bread and butter. Are you seeing vacancy being a little bit higher in multifamily than single family or any any difference between the asset classes to point out? I'm hearing that in the A and B class where you have the common area type stuff. But a lot of Chicago housing stock has, yes, they might have a common area in the front, but everyone uses the back because they park in the back and they go in the back door, which is usually a, a private entrance. So I've not seen it be an issue there. You know, We have a few common areas that uh, in some of the multifamilies that we have that we've, we've cleaned a little more, but we have not heard too many complaints about uh, kind of that type of living. It's got it. Righteous. So Mark, in talking more about kind of Chicago as in a market as a whole, are you seeing, you know, technology jobs, manufacturing jobs, like are you seeing jobs come to the area? Yes. So um, one thing that really excites me about Chicago is 
You know, there's been a lot of job creation in what might have been maybe factory or warehouse type space that might have been automated or, or outsourced in the previous years. Now to these Amazon warehouses and these Amazon delivery positions, these there's so many, I don't know what the right term is, hourly type wage jobs that support a lot of our C&D type rents that have been created, uh, even down to the Uber driver. Those, those That opened up a wave of opportunity for people that weren't, didn't, weren't you know, working at KFC before. So a lot of our C&D class uh, have, are supported by those jobs. And Amazon, they just, they've opened multiple different hubs here and they've all, they have, they just announced a couple weeks ago, they have a couple more, one in both in the South suburbs. So the opportunity for that to come, and then comes all of the supporting businesses that follow around Amazon on a local level. So I think uh, the whole age of shipping is going to at least keep stabilize the growth of, of that. Now on the tech side of things, you know, it, you know, when you have a bunch of Fortune 500 companies in a state, there's a whole bunch of stuff always kind of in the works and different pilot programs and things are rolling out. So I'm pretty optimistic on that outlook. Awesome. Do you guys have a, um, like a realtor or a brokerage side of your business? Yes. Yes. So we do. You know, we have a brokerage side and we really specialize more in selling properties more than we do running people around to look for properties. And then we have an industrial commercial side of things. So we get a good glimpse on the industrial side of things and how occupancy is all that to give us a telltale on how these jobs are and, and the growth is for a particular area. So I'll tell you this, on the industrial side, 17 years, uh, we've had our, our brokerage open on the industrial side, and we have never seen such high occupancy rates on the industrial side uh, here in the Chicago market. Now, we have O'Hare, and we have a couple of the largest industrial parks here in the country. So as a countrywide, it's a pretty good gauge on how things are going. But locally-wise, that's jobs. It transfers jobs. It transfers opportunity for people. And, mm -hmm. and uh, that, that's, I mean, it's at an all-time high right now. Interesting. And what are you seeing in terms of sale, like property sales? Because I get the question all the time from folks at Roofstock and then within the Roofstock Academy about, hey, is now a good time to buy? Is inventory high? Is it low? Are prices going up? Or are they going down? So what are you seeing with properties and how fast they're flying off the shelves and above, below asking price or kind of right there? Yeah, no. So I, I, I follow on a weekly basis. Uh, we have our local uh, MLS uh, data that we could pull and I follow on a weekly basis. I don't, the amount of transactions is down. And, but the amount of inventory is down. So like in 2009, 10, like the amount of inventory was way up and the amount of uh, people were down. So we had all these uh, discounted pricing, but the prices are able to stay up and stay high right now because our inventory is low and the number of transactions are low. And I think the amount, and, and Matt, I think I know the pace of buyers is outpacing the amount of inventory. So that, that's keeping like a really strong demand there. It's a, a bad habit for real estate agents listing properties right now because they're, they're getting they're getting paid too easy, but <laughs> it's creating something that's it's kind of stabilizing things in a weird time right now. So it, it's a good scenario for, uh, I guess, uh, a weird time. Yeah. Neil, you got anything else? No, man, you've hit all the, all the key points. Man, in only 35 minutes, we did it? Yeah, you, you <laughs> talked fast, Mark. This is great. What else should people know about the city of Chicago? I had on my podcast the other day, someone that specializes in working with out-of-state investors. And, and we kind of did like a top five of what people should know about Chicago. Perfect. The number one thing on that list ended up being Section 8. A lot of stuff that, that people are buying on Roofstock end up being, uh, you know, I would say maybe 75% of what, what I take over for Roofstock buyers ends up being Section 8. And just the unknowns of people understanding Section 8 is something that is uh, important. Talk to us a little bit about Section 8 in Chicago, because Emil and I did a, a webinar a few months back about kind of high-level Section 8, but it's so localized for every PHA, the Public Housing Authority, as to how it works, the ins and outs, uh, the details of it. So talk to us a little bit about Chicago-style Section 8. 
Yeah. So uh, Chicago has, you know, like anywhere else, there's different uh, housing authorities that run the localized authorities. Programs. And so Chicago is Chicago Housing Authority, CHA. And then the South Suburbs we're talking about or anywhere in Cook County is uh, Housing Authority of Cook County. So HACC. Both are ran very different. I mean, every Section 8 place in the country is governed under HUD. But they all have different nuances. And understanding some of those nuances is uh, important when you're coming into a different market. And I'll tell you this, us dealing with CHA is a hell of a lot harder than is dealing with uh, HACC, which is Cook County. So I know when we have an employee that has to make a call to one of each, that they'll call uh, Cook County all day first. They don't want to have to call CHA. <laughs> but you know, it's uh, government uh, bureaucracy that gets in the way and, and understanding the pace they move. And understanding... Uh, so. One of the things that I think a lot of investors from out of state, and this might be relevant anywhere in the country, when you turn over a unit, if you have a Section 8 tenant and you move them out and you're moving another Section 8 tenant, your turnover time is going to be a lot longer than it would be if you have a market tenant moving another market tenant in. So that's something that when people are, uh, we try to educate them coming upon turnover because Section 8 tenants, they tend to, you know, usually don't know when they're going to move to uh, maybe a couple of days before because they're waiting on, if they're moving, they're staying in the program. 99% of the time, but they're moving to another section of the house that they're waiting on an inspection to pass, waiting for that landlord to coordinate the move in. So you can't pinpoint a section eight tenant moving out like you can a market tenant that's just, hey, I'm be out Saturday at the end of the month. Uh, it's pretty guaranteed. Uh, you go and they can plan around it. So, but now you can't plan around the section eight tenant moving out. And then if you go find another section eight tenant, you have to go through the process of you know submitting the paperwork, getting the inspection, passing the inspection. Maybe you failed it. Maybe you have to go back again. Then you got to wait for rent determination. So it adds days onto it. And I, and our numbers for us, when we move, it's, it's our, our longest turnover numbers is when we move a section eight tenant out and we move a section eight tenant in, and it ends up being for us about 70 days, 72 days, I think is our, uh, when you move, uh, when you go that route. And when you get down to market tenants to market tenants, I think our numbers end up being right around, uh, if we're waiting till the tenant moves out, we end up being right around 32 days. So it's a big difference when you're, when you're trying to figure out your numbers or predict your numbers. Yeah. So note to all those Section 8 owners out there, make sure to fill out that property tax abatement form, right? Because they're big, big vacancy there. Well, also at the same time, though, the flip side is we track the tenancy. So you might have to deal with that extra month of vacancy when you're going Section 8 to Section 8. But our Section 8 tenants, since we've been tracking this in 08, tend to stay about 25% longer than our market tenants. So you do make up a little for that because in the life of your turnover, you'll just have that many. Or in your life of your investment, you might just have that many less turnovers. So. Great point. Does the local housing authority, I know, I know the, the amount that the local housing authority pays like 80%, 90%, it varies from city to city in Chicago. Is it a, like, do you guys have an average? Is it like 90? I know a lot of people mention hundred percent that the local housing authority is paying. It's based on the tenant's income. Okay. So it's not even, so the amount that you get approved for that particular unit is based on an overall number that you can fairly track. And I actually have, we could reference it, but I have one for the South suburbs that you could look in a town and see exactly how much you get paid, but the portions end up being different. And I'll tell you this, this is something that a lot of people don't realize a lot of people and including myself, I used to brag, like I got a tenant in there and the tenant and section A is paying 100%. I used to think that was awesome, but that is not because that section A tenant that is getting hundred percent paid by the housing authority. More than likely, they don't have income. If they don't have income, more than likely, they're not working. What are they doing all day? They're staying home all day and destroying your house. And uh, who are they hanging out with? They have other friends that are not working that day. So they're coming over and destroying your house. Their kids, that's their uh, influence. And they're having their friends over and they're destroying your house. So some of the biggest turnovers I've ever had were for the, we call them zero renters, ones that don't have portions. 
And I'll tell you this, even the small portions, when a Section 8 tenant has a 40 or $45 portion, that is harder to get from a tenant than it is $450. So th- there's a lot of pros and cons of Section 8 and, and people understanding that, uh, the value of that. Good to know. Uh, okay. You, you mentioned the other, there were five tips. That was the first one, Section 8. Do you remember the other four? Uh, Section 8 ended up being number one. The other four end up being uh, permits, making sure people get permits. The other one was, uh, I, don't, I don't remember offhand what exactly they were. Uh, Is that like a rental permit? Like when you have a, a new tenant, you have to get a permit? No, it ended up uh, for building permits. So the person I was talking to sold a bunch of properties uh, through a turnkey company that ended up not getting permits on anything. And after the buyer bought the property, it ended up being some nightmare stories where the buyer had to go back, get all the permits, do everything the right way per the city code. And, and a lot of people got jammed up. And that was really what that was around, buying a property where the guy did the right work under the right permits. Got it. Renovation, like any renovations made, pulling the right permits for it. Got it. Yes, yes. The other few were, uh, you know, they, they talked to you know, one of them was property management. You know, I think so property management here in Chicago and is very different than most other places because we have, you know, you, I think you have section eight and CHA is a nuance in itself. And some of the larger nationwide brands have a hard time localizing themselves for it. But the bigger thing is in the suburbs, all these suburbs have these rental licenses and they all have different requirements. You know, one suburb might say, you have to inspect it every year and it's paid on a calendar year. The other one's it's you got to inspect it every year, but you pay it on an anniversary date. The other one is you only have to inspect it when the tenant moves out. And so everything is so different. And, and one city might require a, a roof inspection every time. At one, and they're just all so different where when you don't do it, the fines are pretty steep. So when they catch you without it, they give you a five or $700 type fee. Now, staying on top of that, man, it's, it's crazy. We struggle to make sure we're always, we try to ha- stay out ahead of the curve on anything, but we're always just kind of there, kind of always making sure anything doesn't hit the floor, even as much experience we have with it. But that was one of the big things is if you have a property manager that's not specifically local, they're going to struggle with those type of laws. Makes okay. sense. Yeah. Cool. Emil, any final questions before we wrap this up? No, I think it's probably a good spot. Awesome. So Mark, I have two final questions for you. One, who is your superhero influencer? That's easy. He-Man. I mean, that, that was all hands down. He-Man and I had a crush on She-Ra. Like, it was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And then my last question for you, Mark, is if people have more questions about Chicago market, about GC Realty and development, what's the best way for folks to reach out or get in touch with you? Uh, so reach out to me. Uh, you could uh, put myself on there, 630-781-6744. Our website my goal or my job, what I try to do is educate people. We have a podcast, uh, Straight Up Chicago Investor, that we, you know, we don't sell anything on there. We simply educate people through interviewing others that have done it already in front of us. And, and a lot of the great nuggets that come out of that uh, show ends up being the mistakes everyone else made, including myself. So if you want to get more educated on the market, there's not a better show on that for Chicago specific. Fantastic. Well, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time today, chatting with us. It's been a lot of fun and look forward to catching up again sometime soon. Yeah, for sure. Anytime. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. All right, everybody. That was our episode for today. A big, big, big thank you to Mark Ainley with GC Realty and Development. Super, super informative, super action-oriented. I'm hopeful that everybody who just listened to the episode now has a list of things to go do and check out in the Chicago market if they are interested in investing there. If you like the show, please give us a rating and review. If you didn't, you can feel free to not give us a rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe wherever it is listening to your podcast. Thanks so much. See you on the next one. Happy investing. Happy investing. <laughs>